We're continuing in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians, this treasure in jars of clay. Some of you probably don't know this, but there was a period in my life when I uh, was into cussing. I might have been 12 or so. I had made a bunch of friends in our neighborhood of Los Montitos in Badajoz where we lived. And even my one Christian friend at church cussed, so um, I did too. Not in front of my parents, but, uh, but I did. I'll tell you when that changed. I had a life-changing encounter with God when I was 14. Wasn't the first, wasn't the last, but it was a very significant encounter with God in which God showed me the depth of his love for me. And I wanted nothing more than to know him. I wanted nothing more than to dive into knowing God. And I sensed that God did not care for dark and ugly words coming out of my mouth, so I stopped using that language. Sometimes it's hard to navigate living in this world and loving people around us and sharing life with people around us and pursuing Christ. And sometimes it's hard to navigate that well. Paul's talking about that in today's passage. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 14 and we'll go through the first verse of chapter 7. I've titled today's message, A Holy Life. Let's begin in verse 14. I'm just going to read it a little snippet at a time and talk about it as we go. But beginning in verse 14 here, do not become unevenly yoked to unbelievers. We arrive at a portion that kind of sticks out in the middle of this section from like chapter 3 to 7 where he's really painting a picture of what his ministry is like and painting this picture to try to counter a false teaching that's going on in the city of Corinth where people are, are kind of, it's, it's kind of a first century of version of the health and wealth gospel. The idea that uh, Christian ministry should uh, be demonstrating the kinds of glory and uh, dignity and power that the world around us prizes and, and values and that Christians should uh, feel fine about pursuing those same kinds of pursuits in life. And no doubt in a city like Corinth, a very wealthy city, Uh, with a strong connection to Rome where so much commerce came through the city and there was so much money passing hands uh, in Corinth. Surely uh, there, if anywhere, the Roman system of currying favor with the wealthy and trying to move up the ranks of aristocracy by cultivating relationships. And where do those relationships happen? They happen in the life of the pagan world, which... Uh, oftentimes would involve people throwing feasts at the temples where there would be uh, all kinds of promiscuity and sexuality involved in it. And it's not just let's have a dinner, it's uh, let's have a dinner and sex. 
And that's the Roman lifestyle. And how do you move up in the ranks if you're not part of all of that? And Paul's already in 1 Corinthians addressed this. And he's warned them, no, now that we're in Christ, we can't just keep on going to the temple prostitutes like we used to. Something has to have changed. And I think that's kind of the background of this, that there is this push in Corinth in Paul's absence to say we can be Christians and great Romans too and we can how better to influence the world for Christ than for us to move up in the ranks of aristocracy and uh, achieve the kind of respect and glory that the world around us honors and let's play into that and uh, use that for the kingdom of God And let's pursue a glorious approach to the gospel life, which is what Paul has been countering every step in this letter. He's been painting a picture of suffering and uh, difficulty and hardship and weakness and lack because he insists that is where Christ really does his thing. He doesn't need us to do it for him. And we cannot build the Christian life. We cannot build the kingdom of God the way the world builds kingdoms. So we get to this section that kind of sticks out because it feels like something we we would have found in 1 Corinthians. It's it's a, a teaching section, an instruction section where he's saying, telling them not to do something. We see a lot of that in 1 Corinthians. It's kind of like he has a laundry list of problems and he goes from one to the next. Now concerning this, and he'll say something, and concerning this, he'll say, so this section we're looking at today reads like one of those. And what is Paul's encouragement, his teaching? Do not become unevenly yoked to unbelievers. He's using a metaphor here that might be a little foreign to us because I suspect that most of us have never worked with a yoke. Some of us may have never even seen a yoke. And I'm not talking about the kind that's in eggs. Uh, This one's spelled different. A yoke is something you use to bind two animals together so that together they can pull a heavier load. If you have one ox and you put a harness on him, Uh, A harness would allow you to have one ox pull like a plow or something. But if you had really difficult terrain and you needed more strength, then you would take two oxen and you would put a yoke over the back of both of them around their necks and you would fasten the harness on each one and the yoke would allow the two to pull together and you would double the amount of strength you could put into the work. Today we use machines. That's why we don't use yokes anymore. We don't use oxen to do this kind of thing. And what Paul is painting a picture of here is something I'm not sure anybody ever was doing, really. But suppose you said, well, I don't have two oxen, but I've got an ox and a mule. And uh, I'm kind of an engineer, so I'll figure out a way to finagle making a yoke go around the higher neck of the, of the mule and the lower neck of the ox, and I'll space it out right. And suppose you can uh, manage the feat of engineering to create a yoke that will accommodate two completely different types of animals. That's still not a good idea. I can see, I can imagine that it would be very easy for a mule to, to break a leg, uh, being tied to an ox and trying to pull because they they don't have the same leg length, the same gait. Uh, it, It would be very difficult for them to actually function together in a yoke. That's the mental image Paul is painting here. 
And what he's talking about uh, being yoked together, being bound together in a common uh, pursuit or cause is us or the readers of this letter and people who do not have faith, people outside of the faith who have not put their faith in Jesus. Uh, that's that's the, the opening instruction, and we might say, well, that's kind of weird. So is Paul uh, kind of reverting back to his old Pharisee days? Is he saying that we need to withdraw from unbelievers and not hang around them and not, not do anything uh, among them? Do we pursue holiness the way the Jewish people of the day pursued holiness, which was by not interacting with Gentiles? I don't think that's at all what Paul's trying to say. So let's go through the following uh, verses and see what he has to say. And maybe this will paint a picture for us. Finishing verse 14. For what partnership do righteousness and lawlessness have? And he starts painting these pictures of opposites. And what he means to say by all of this is, on one side we have what represents the life of a person who has trusted his heart to Jesus and who has uh, surrendered his life to Jesus and is in the process of being saved and redeemed and eternally transformed from shame to glory, from death to life. This is one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation is a person who has not entered into that. Uh, a, just a regular old human being on his own, apart from God. And he starts pulling out these contrasts that make uh, common cause impossible for these two types of persons. What partnership, what joining together in common cause can there be between righteousness on the one hand and lawlessness on the other? And righteousness, I've said this before, you need to, when you hear that word, you need to think just right. Rightness. But that's the whole point of the word righteousness. In other words, there is something that is right, there is something that is wrong, and you choose what is right as opposed to what is wrong. You want uh, what is right. Not what's messed up, what is wrong, what isn't as it should be. If we are following Christ, we are in the process of recovering those distinctions. Because God makes a distinction. God makes a distinction between what is acceptable and what is not. What uh, accords with life and what accords with death. What is wicked and what is virtuous. God makes these distinctions, and as we are following after Christ, we're in the process of learning and seeing those distinctions implemented in our hearts and lives so that we do care very much about what is right, and we do care very much about what is wrong, and we do not want to embrace what is wrong. We want to embrace what is right. That is the life we have chosen in Christ. On the other hand, somebody outside of Christ can be described as lawless anomos uh, so there's law and it's somebody who wants nothing to do with it no law and it isn't simply the idea of anarchy but if on the one hand we're submitting to God's distinctions of right and wrong on the other hand we have somebody who has not submitted to that who does not want anybody's law and much less God's law applied to his life and heart. 
They are going to be the arbiters of what they decide is right or wrong and they're going to do whatever they choose to do with their life because they have not surrendered to God as Lord of their life. They are uh, lawless people. They have rejected the whole idea that there is a right and a wrong way to live life. Right and wrong uh, outside of Christ is whatever I come up with. That's the way the world around us is living their lives. And Paul's saying, think a minute. How can you join these two approaches to life and say, let's walk together down the path. Let's be partners in this. Partners in what? You're going this way. They're going that way. We're not going to the same place. We're not moving in the same direction. On the one hand, you have somebody who says, I'm in pursuit of what is right. On the other hand, you have somebody who says, anything goes. Another contrast, still in verse 14. Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? That word he uses there is the Greek koinonia, that sweet binding together of hearts and lives that happens among children of God. That sweet fellowship. Is that what happens between light and darkness? He's already talked about how Christ, God has illuminated us and has through the light of Christ in our lives brought, to, brought in the light of Christ. And light is associated with warmth and life. Without the sun, there would be no life. It would all be cold and dead. And we need light to understand the world around us and to see what's going on. Light illuminates and unveils the reality of what's going on. So light is associated with warmth with life, with truth. What is darkness associated with? It's associated with the absence of clear uh, vision. It's associated with blindness. It's associated with deception and hiding truth. It's associated with coldness, with a lack of warmth. It's associated ultimately with death. And clearly Paul is saying, we who are in Christ have embraced light as the kind of life we are pursuing. Those who reject Christ have said, we love the darkness we're in. We don't want it taken from us. We want to be in darkness. We do not want to give it up. We do not want to surrender it. Paul, uh, Jesus talked in the Gospel of John about how uh, people who are in darkness love the darkness and they do not want the light. Can there be true fellowship between these two kinds of persons? A true joining of hearts and souls? Verse 15, what agreement does Christ have with Belial or Beliar? Uh, Belial does not appear in the Old Testament, but it's all over the place in the intertestamental writings that aren't in the Bible. Um, and it, it uh, comes from the, the Hebrew term for wickedness, and it became kind of a poetic synonym for Satan. Uh, so, what kind of agreement? Christ came into the world to save the world, and he gave his life to rescue the world and to establish himself as rightful ruler, as king of kings and lord of lords, prince of peace, and to redeem all of creation and rescue it from sin and death. 
What is Satan up to? Are any of those goals Satan's goals? Well, no. He's, he's all about trying to get as many people as he can to exclude themselves from Christ, to turn away from him, to find an excuse to reject him. And that is what he devotes all his energy to, is deceiving and convincing us that life in Christ is worse than the life they already have. So Paul says, do you think Jesus is sitting down with Satan and saying, okay, where can we be on the same page? What can we do together? Let's agree about these things. Let's, let's find a, a place of agreement. And, and Paul's reminding us that we who belong to Christ have chosen one approach to life. Those who reject Christ as Lord have chosen a very different approach to life. One in open rebellion against Christ's lordship. Do we expect to agree? Or what portion does a person of faith have with an unbeliever? Portion, that's a, a word we find a lot in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk of portion and inheritances and receiving your portion, right? And it has to do with, with the investments and the uh, return on investments we receive from our living, right? What kind of portion belongs to a person who is in Christ. What is, uh, where did Jesus tell us we're to be accumulating treasures? He said in heaven, where moth can't get in and chew through it, where thieves can't break in and steal anything, we have chosen as our portion, as the investment of our life, and, and the thing that we will have as a return for the investment of our life, as our portion in life, the things that are of the kingdom of Christ, things that are eternal and that will transcend everything about this world. We are investing ourselves in relationships that are going to go on forever. We are investing ourselves in surrender to a transformation of heart and soul that will remain forever. I will be in eternity what Christ is making me. Everything I surrender to him becomes another part of my portion in Christ, my treasure in heaven. A person who is outside of the faith, who has rejected trusting in Jesus, what are they investing themselves in? It's not the kingdom of God. Everything about their lives is being invested in something else than what we are trying to invest our lives in. We uh, are in two completely different banking systems, and there is uh, people outside of Christ have no account in the kingdom of God bank. That Paul says, what, what portion do we share the same things we're trying to get out of life? Not at all. Our investment is not even, the, in, it's not even in the same currency. So we've looked at a few contrasts. Let me ask you, what aspects of your living are incompatible with the ways people who don't follow Jesus live? Have you ever given that any thought? 
What aspects of your living are incompatible with the ways people who don't follow Jesus live? There's one more comparison. Verse 16, what union does God's temple have with idols? In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this. In chapter 8 and in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he devotes extensive portions of that letter to dealing with the idea of meat sacrificed to idols. And boy, it's a complicated question. Because idols represent gods that don't actually exist. And meat was not created by Satan. It was created by God. So meat in and of itself is immaterial. It's just meat. I don't care what some priest did over it. It's still a chunk of meat. And God made it. It doesn't belong to Satan. It's God's meat. Meat is meat. So there's that side. But then Paul starts talking, well, but all that's going on at the temple... Yeah, all that juju is nonsense, but there are demonic forces behind all of that. And Satan is using this to deceive people so that they turn away from God and don't come to him. And that whole system is a dark, powerful system meant to blind people and to separate them from Christ. So yeah, meat is just meat. But if you sit at the temple and, and appear to be participating in what they're doing there and endorsing all of that, uh, then you are making it difficult for other people to see that there's another way to go about living. And uh, he ends up saying in chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, that, that uh, what's going on there is demonic. And, and in 21, he says, we cannot drink the cup of Christ and the cup of demons. We cannot sit at the table of Jesus and sit at the table of demons. He's revisiting that idea here in 2 Corinthians. What union what joining together is there between God's temple and idols? And notice Paul doesn't put a fine point on it. He doesn't talk about a particular deity. He knows how accommodating the Roman religious system is. It has a pantheon of a kajillion gods. And if your God is not in the pantheon, it doesn't matter. Just come on in. We'll add it. And it will accommodate anything and everything because any version of not Jesus is just another flavor of the same thing. So Paul just says, idols, any version of something other than Jesus that you have put up there and said, this is what I am about. This is what I am following. There's God's temple and there's idols. Are those two the same? Is God joined to that? Well, if you even take a passing glance at the Old Testament, you will get away with a very strong idea that that is not at all what God would say. God is righteously angry about idolatry and the way it destroys human lives by isolating them from the only one who can give them life. God hates idolatry. Because it destroys human lives. Blinds them to the truth. So is there union? Are they on the same page? Are they joined together? And Paul reminds them, for we are temple of the living God. In other words, God doesn't just live around us. 
He lives in us. And he's saying, that building that Herod spent so much time rebuilding for you guys, the Jews, that, that's not where it's at. That is not God's temple. In fact, that has become yet another idol. The true temple of God is us. God abides in us. And what the rhetorical question here assumes our answer needs to be is we as temple of God cannot be joined together, cannot be united with idolatry. With, we cannot be gods and at the same time embrace the rejection of God and the establishment of an alternative to him as supreme uh, object of our devotion. Just as God said. And here what Paul does, he, sometimes Jews would do this. They take very prominent themes in Scripture and they kind of mash them together into kind of a mashed up Bible reference. So you look, if you look at your footnotes, you'll see that there are like nine different verses that people point to in the Old Testament. So he's strung together a very common theme that, that appears in, in the books of Moses and that appears in the prophets and, and kind of strung it and mashed it together to just give voice to a scriptural teaching uh, that God has said. I will dwell in them and will walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And that harkens all the way back to Moses and when God first approached the people of Israel and invited them to a journey with him and invited them to belong to him and he would belong to them. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We might find it odd that Paul is quoting this because out of context, if we were just to pick this up randomly, we might think Paul is just giving voice to the traditional Pharisaic approach to holiness which is you are holy by not getting dirty with Gentiles. You isolate yourself from Gentiles because Gentiles eat unclean food. That means they are in a constant state of uncleanness. And if you even touch them or if you sit on a chair they were sitting on, you become contaminated. You become unclean. And it takes rituals and purification to restore your status as clean and acceptable to God. That's the way uh, holiness was illustrated in the law of Moses. There was a very physical, visceral uh, illustration of holiness with this whole language of clean and unclean. Now, of course, when Christ comes, uh, our understanding of all of that has changed dramatically. But I, I, so I don't think Paul here is quoting this in the way a Pharisee of his day would quote it, the way even Paul himself might before have quoted it, before coming to Christ, that the way we please God and the way we belong to him and he is our God and we are his people is that we come out from among the people. We isolate ourselves from the people. We separate ourselves from them. We refuse to touch what is unclean because it would contaminate us. And only then will God welcome us and will he be a father to us and will he make us his sons and daughters. Now the promise here is God wants to be father. He wants to make us family. But for that to really happen, 
Paul's saying we have to embrace holiness. We can't be the family we're meant to be if we insist on living the way we were living. You know why that family doesn't exist in the world around us? Because it takes surrender to God to undergo the transformation necessary for us to be able to become that type of family. So what he's saying here isn't let's go back in time and let's go back to the way it was before and let's pursue this holiness of avoiding physical contact with the unclean. No, he's saying let's understand that the way we fully embrace what God is doing among us is to embrace the fact that we cannot live the way we used to live. We cannot be what we used to be. We have to step out of that. We have to separate ourselves from it. We have to now reject what is unclean that used to be all we knew. We have to give it up. Let me ask you, how important is it in your life that God would dwell in you that he would be your father, that he would make you part of his family. Does that govern your living? Or is it just kind of an assumed thing in the background? Paul kind of wraps it up here in this final verse, chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, beloved... We should cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul's reminding us that as we follow Christ, there is a goal. That word I've translated to completion. Some translators say bringing holiness to perfection. Uh, It's a verbal form of the word telos. I've talked about this before. The word that means end as the sense of the final goal of something, as in the end of a race. Uh, And it's the the idea of there's an intended final goal to something. So holiness is the intended final goal of our calling in Christ. That we should be fully set apart When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was buying us back from sin and death to belong to him. And holiness is about embracing the the reality that I am surrendering my life to the ownership of God. I want God to have all of me because God in turn has promised to give me all of him. It's not a one-sided thing. God is inviting us to genuine relationship. I will hold back no good thing. From my children, God says. But he asks us to do the same, to surrender fully to him. And that, he says, is what we need to bring to completion. We need to pursue in our living a life completely surrendered to God. Sometimes we forget, we, we, we confuse mission with final goal. Our goal is Christ. It's not to evangelize the world. Our task is to share the life we've been given with the world. Our task in this life is to do all we can to share Christ with everyone we can. But it is not our goal in existing. It is not the reason we're here. It is not the end uh, purpose of our living. The end purpose of our living is to fully belong to God. 
to open ourselves up fully to everything he is. And this is where sometimes we get it wrong. And we substitute the mission of Christ for Christ. And then holiness falls off the radar. And then it's just about accommodating and connecting and contextualizing the gospel. And before we know it, we are no different than the people we're trying to reach. Because we've tried so hard to reach them that we've forgotten Christ. And Paul says you can't do that. You can't walk away from Christ as you're pursuing the lost world around you. Or you have nothing to offer the lost We live in a world where there is immense pressure on us to embrace new definitions of sexuality and human identity and all kinds of things that we human beings have invented out of our brains. Things that Scripture clearly tells us God is not pleased about. Things that God says this is not the right way to go about living a human life. But if we try, try to reach the lost around us by joining them in everything, what are we offering them but more of the same death they already have? What they need to know is that there's a new way to live the human life. There is a new identity to be found, and it's not one you have to fabricate to impress your peers. It's an identity given to you by God Almighty. A God who made you in his image and likeness. So we, we, when Paul says here that we have to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit, and there are things Paul is aware that very physically contaminate us, but I don't think Paul has in mind here the old Jewish idea of certain foods or touching somebody who is in a state of ritual uncleanness. I think Paul has abandoned all of that. And has never, in any of his letters, does he encourage anybody to uh, follow those aspects of the law which were meant to illustrate holiness but do not in and in, in of themselves contain the, the, the reality of holiness. They illustrate the fact that, that God distinguishes between what is acceptable and unacceptable and every aspect of our living should submit to that and illustrate that to the world around us. But as Christians, we are doing this in a different way than by not eating bacon. There are much more powerful ways to convey holiness than, than uh, the, the ritual laws of cleanliness from Leviticus. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit. You want a good illustration of a defilement of flesh and spirit? Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 tells him, you need to stop going to see the temple prostitutes. Because you are joined to Christ. And are you going to be joined to Christ and then go into a temple and join yourself to a prostitute? Don't you see how abhorrent that is? Because there is a very real physical connection. But in sexuality, there's more than just a physical connection. There is something mysterious and spiritual going on. That is why the Bible makes such a big deal about human sexuality. And we treat it today like it's recreational. And people are shredding their souls by abusing it. Person after person after person. And every time you lose something. Because it is a spiritual act. 
Paul says, we abstain from the things that we know are defiling us, are destroying what Christ is trying to do in our lives. We go about human living very differently. We believe there is such a thing as celibacy. And it's not a curse. It's a calling, a gifting. We believe in the sanctity of marriage and the holiness of the marriage bed. We cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit. And what we're trying to do is bring holiness to completion. We're trying to bring this thing home. We're pushing for that as our goal. And holiness, to fully surrender to God, to be fully set apart to Him, to fully belong to Him in every ounce and fiber of our being, that is our goal in life. And what we're doing in our mission in this world is trying to invite others to join us. And we'll do anything we can to do that short of betraying that primary calling. Paul said, I'm all things to all people. Jesus himself modeled this for us. Jesus hung out with all kinds of people. He interacted with Roman centurions and with tax collectors and sinners. He sat down and had meals with them. He didn't isolate himself and he did things the law said you shouldn't do. He touched lepers, which should have made Jesus unclean. And yet, it made the leper clean. He didn't isolate himself. But you know what? Jesus never became a centurion. He never became a tax collector. He never became a Pharisee. He never became a Sadducee. He never became a Herodian. He never became a zealot. And yet, he shared life with all of them. That's the call. To show people intimately, closely, genuinely what a life looks like surrendered to God. So we have to let the world understand there's no way we're not going the same place. We're not headed in the same direction. I'm sorry, I love you to death, but I am not your partner in the path you're walking. I'm sorry, I cannot be. I'm going to Canada, you're going to Mexico. We're not going the same place. We're not headed in the same direction. But I will love you and I will be here and I will show you that there's a different path for your life. That's exactly how Jesus did it. That's how the Apostle Paul did it. I think there's an indictment on the church in this nation. How many times have Christians hitched their wagon to somebody who was not a Christian? just because politically the person promised to further some agenda of ours. What kind of partnership can there be between people who are pursuing Christ and people who are pursuing themselves? And I'm not saying don't uh, encourage, uh, don't say it looks like this candidate is a better choice, let's vote for this candidate. That's fine, but don't turn him into God's chosen He's not. No, uh, none of these politicians are that. And even within the church, you shouldn't do that with a pastor. 
We're following Christ. All of us. I'm doing the same thing you are. But we, we need to watch what we're hitching ourselves to, what we're attaching ourselves to. And a lot has been done to hurt the witness of the church because of things like the religious right and their political agenda. Even the world can see our hypocrisy at times. They don't have to be super Christian to understand. So let me ask you, how are you making holiness, belonging only to God, a central focus of your life? Are you seeking to bring this to completion in your life? God's calling us to himself. He wants to live in us. He wants to be our God. He wants to be our Father. He wants us to be his temple in which he dwells. He wants us to be his people, his sons and daughters. And this call to dive deep into God is a call to holiness. A call to be set apart exclusively to God. Not to God and some other thing, but only to belong to God. In this world, we are called to love those around us who have not yet come to know God, who are still in open rebellion against God. How do we pursue God and still love the lost world around us? Paul tells us we do this by refusing to bind ourselves to the patterns in the world that are in rejection of God. Patterns that promote wickedness or false approaches to living. We don't tie ourselves to these things. We are distinctly different. Only if we strive to remain untainted by the world can we provide a true witness to the gospel. We have to look different than the world around us or we have nothing to offer. No alternative to the life they're currently living. So as you are pursuing Christ, I want you to ask yourself, am I living as a person whose goal in life is to fully belong to God? Or have I joined forces that are at work against that goal? We're now at the time in our worship where we encourage you to respond to God's word, what he has said. If you don't know Jesus, what I've been saying right now might sound crazy. Let me just tell you, there's a whole different universe to discover if you will just have the courage to surrender your life to him and let him redeem you, rescue you, and make you his own as he gives himself to you. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to discover what this is all about. Maybe you already know him, and today's been a reminder. You have been binding yourself, your heart, your affections, your intentions, your approach to living. You have been tying yourself to things that are uh, working against me. And I need you to separate yourself from those things. I need you to stand with me, not against me. And let me do my work in you that way. I want you to embrace a life in pursuit of holiness. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to tell God, I I repent and I surrender to that. I want that. 
Let's all stand. We'll have people standing here at the front on either side. While we're coming, if you want to talk with somebody and have them pray with you, come to either side and share with them what God's put on your heart and let them pray with you and encourage you. I also want to say the altar is open. If you would uh, not prefer to talk to somebody, you just want to come and kneel at the altar and pray. The altar is open. Come and pray if that's what you want to do. But respond in any way you feel God is leading you to. Come while we sing.